I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, everybody. It's your favorite sick boy, Brian, here, and I am here today with... Well... I don't know. I, I, hey, hey, hey. I don't know if you're the favorite, Brian. Well, uh, a lot of people have been buying my Team Brian <laughs> shirt on the Sick Boy merch store. I fucking hate those shirts. Uh, hi, everybody. It's me, Jeremy. I'm back. Yeah, how you feeling, oh, dude? Fuck, dude. The the last couple of weeks have been uh, easily the the hardest. The, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. So what? So for the the people who are listening right now, okay, yeah. What did, so what did you go through? Quick little update. Um, uh, I've been at a commission for the last uh, two three weeks. Um, essentially, what happened was, um, and if you're if you're if you're an avid listener to Sick Boy, um, you will be very well aware of uh, of Intussusception, the the barium enema story from our very first episode. So that was a thing that I went through when I was a young kid. Right where my my intestine starts to roll itself in on itself like a sock due to a a bowel obstruction. Gross. Yeah, super gross, and also really dangerous. Right. So uh, when I was a kid, they had to take care of that uh, through through this barium enema. It was a very scarring experience. Although in retrospect, pretty funny experience as well. <laughs> but that didn't work this time. No, it didn't. They tried it this time, and they were like, "Dude, you're you're a grown man." Um, your bowels did like that barium enema did nothing. Um, and so, and because this is a intussusception is not a thing that people my age get. It's like you, you, you either get it when you're an infant and they just like, it's very easy procedure to fix an infant or you get it when you're like old AF and you know, they'll like slice someone open and, and fix them and hopefully they live, I guess. I don't know. Well, um, but so for a young buck like myself, they're like, oh, we need to nail this one. Yeah. And they're like, we don't, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to like slice you all the way open and do this crazy procedure, but also we got to get in there. So what they did was they performed a surgery that was, um, that, that served two purposes. One was to stop the intussusception and two was to stop the intussusception from ever happening again because they figured all of the bowel obstructions I've had in the past when I was a kid, because I had several, they were all bouts of intussusception. Oh, whoa, really? Yeah. So it was like not as severe and could kind of cure itself. Exactly. And so they were like, we don't want this to happen again. So we're going to give you this surgery that is, uh, that, that they usually do for people with like colon cancer. So it's called a, a hemicolectomy. And they basically removed about like 70% of my large intestine. 
Dude, this sounds crazy because it's like if if you have a headache, then the cure is not to cut your head off. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. we're gonna prevent this headache from ever coming yeah. back again. Yeah, so we're just gonna cut your head off. <laughs> like we're just gonna lose your whole colon. <laughs> yeah. Fuck it, we'll throw it out. <laughs> so anyway, it was a, it was a huge procedure, and there's a whole bunch of really good gold in there in terms of like uh, the the story and the experience. And we'll get into it. Let's do it. Let's do a full episode okay. on it. We will. Uh, not today. We'll we'll save it. Maybe maybe next week. Um, because right now I'm, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm You're still recovering, dude. I'm like maybe 40% right now. So maybe 50, I'm like 50%. I went to see a movie last night by myself and it was my first outing, uh, Blade Runner. If anyone hasn't seen it, holy shit, go see it. It was amazing. Uh, but so, you know, yesterday was my first day out and, uh, this is my first time back on the mic. So cool. And and you know what the other thing is today is really exciting because yeah uh, we just we just have the uh, the documentary airing tonight we're recording this on Sunday this episode comes out on Monday you guys know how this works yeah um, but the documentary is airing tonight so nationally on CBC across the country I mean it's already aired now I guess so it doesn't really matter what time but if you if you missed it you can tune in online go to cbc.ca and. You can find the if you're in Canada, if but, you're in uh, Canada, yeah. or or you get a VPN if you're elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. So if you're a new listener to the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, I figure like I figure after the doc, there's going to be quite a few newbies kind of joining joining in. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we just give them like the quick um, Cole's, Cole's notes, notes of of what this is all about? So this is a, a really horrible podcast that you it, you're really wasting your time. I would stop listening uh, now. <laughs> Uh, Joe Rogan's much better. Uh, <laughs> the audio quality is pretty good. Like the, our audio gear sounds good, but like the the stuff that comes yeah. out of our mouths. No, is we're, really we're so we've been around for a couple of years now, and uh, the whole idea of this podcast is to talk to people who are living with chronic or terminal illness. Uh, but we're a comedy podcast. So we try to find the the light and the and the humor and the levity within a pretty pretty challenging subject matter. And, and I think what we're really trying to do is is to create this movement around. Um, um, having these open, real, vulnerable conversations, um, and primarily focused around around illness. So, if you know anybody in your life who is sick, or you are sick yourself, um, how can you have those open conversations that can kind of create some connection between yeah. you and your friends and loved ones? But it goes beyond that, right? Like the the sickness is just a is just one piece exactly. of the puzzle, right? Because like we're we're really just promoting open dialogue surrounding everything and anything, especially those things that are hard to talk about, right? Like a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode where we talked to uh, Jordan, who was gay. And obviously gayness is not a sickness. <laughs> I, there's some people out there who might Think argue that, that. Yeah. but uh, but really... Those we, people are sick. Th- those people are sick. <laughs> but really, we just wanted to talk to Jordan about his experience and the challenges socially growing up being a gay male and like coming out and and it's not limited to the the three of us plus our guests it, it's it we're, we're encouraging you guys to go and have these conversations in your lives too and that's what that's what we really want to see happen from this podcast that's right so uh, if you are if you are listening to this right now on on apple podcasts uh, it would mean the world to us if you just hit that subscribe button really really huge um, if you want to support what you're listening to, uh, we would love your support. We are on Patreon. Um, it's it's how we we fund trips to different cities um, and and to hear the stories of other people who don't live in Halifax. So that's www.patreon.com/sickboy. And um, 
And yeah. thank you so much for, for tuning in. And thank you so much to the listeners who have been here from the very beginning, too. It means the world to us. And uh, we know that you're going to love this episode. Yeah. Oh, and I just want to quickly say this beautiful music that you've been hearing underneath us. Um, which I'm, I'm assuming has just been looping over and over again because this has been so long. Uh, this is this is one of the main themes from the the documentary. Um, it was put together by Asif and Shabab uh, Ilyas from the Shire here in Halifax, and uh, they are musical geniuses. Uh, we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for the work that you put in to the documentary. It would not have been uh, what it is without your work. And uh, I think tonight. Let, today let's let's play out the episode with the whole track we'll just let it play out so people can hear how beautiful that track is let's do it so without further ado um here's today's episode welcome to sick boy a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick this week's guest is josh he's a first responder who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder let's talk about it With Anna Maria Tremonti, CBC Radio One. Do you do um, her voice as a British voice too? Dude, no, she, no, he, no. Did, he did it yesterday as a British voice. I go, she's absolutely not British, um, or maybe that was you. Yeah, I did it that. wasn't me. Yeah. I think it was Brian. Oh, yeah. Anna Maria Tremonti. Yeah, and I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, that's a, not her. A, that's not British or Anna Maria Tremonti. <laughs> um, so I was we were doing this pre-interview, and the woman Inez, she goes, um, "Oh, so you guys are being listened to in." tons of different countries. And I was like, yeah, like it's crazy. I mean, all over the world. And she goes, she goes, great. Like how many languages, it, it, languages is it translated into? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, absolutely none. none. Yeah. <laughs> it's English. It's barely even English. Yeah. Barely English. <laughs> like, you realize it's just the three of us, right? <laughs> what about all those other countries you've mentioned? Yeah. 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 I was like, I'm assuming it's just people who understand language. <laughs> Or really just trying to learn English yeah. with just the worst place to learn yeah. English. They from. want some. They want slang English. They come out of. They come out of listening, and they just all they learn is dude, fuck, shit, and like boob. Like that's like all the yeah. Uh, so, so Josh, what's up? Hey, not much. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Welcome to uh, welcome to our humble abode here in downtown Toronto, the entertainment district. Downtown. Uh, where it feels good to be here again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you applied to be on the show fucking ages ago. Yeah, pretty much right after you launched the podcast. I think it was, uh, it would have been about two years ago. How did you, do you remember how you stumbled across the, the pod? I feel like it was just scrolling through iTunes, looking at podcasts one day and the title caught my eye and just checked it out from there. So mm, we're pretty awesome with the title, right? <laughs> Our title's pretty sick. Right, boys? Was that a, some type of pun? Or? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, so, Josh, you, uh, you've got a couple things going on in your life. Yes, I do, Jer. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have um, both physical and mental health issues that I've lived with for a very long time. What's your physical issues? So the physical health centers around Crohn's disease, which uh, I've had pretty much my whole life. I was diagnosed at the age of 12, and so it's kind of always been a part of my life. Uh, in terms of the mental health side of things, uh, I've just about a year ago, I was diagnosed with PTSD, although in hindsight, it's been around for quite a while. Mm. Yeah. So you you're a paramedic, right? That's right. Uh, although 
about five years ago, I actually had to go on disability due to the combination of both the uh, physical and the mental health problems that I was having. So for almost five years now, I've been on long-term disability. I haven't been working, but I did work for 16 years prior to that as a paramedic. Whoa, 16, Whoa, 16 years. How old are you? That's 41. Time. Whoa, Whoa, dude. Uh, you look like I thought you were early fi- 30s. 15. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought you were in your mid-teens. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Mid-teens with a bitchin' beard and a <laughs> solid mustache. We actually were planning on having you on the podcast because you were the 15-year-old ambulance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, like, we're like, wow, you're like, you're like one of those guys that gets drafted into the NHL like, like when he's 16 rather than 18, um, which doesn't happen. But um, I, was, I was actually... Uh, uh, the reason that uh, you kind of like popped up um, to me was when you wrote a couple of weeks ago after I was talking about my heart on one of the episodes and you were like, hey, I'm a paramedic. I'm, I think I know what's going on with your heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. I remember and I was I was actually I, I rolled over in my bed and I and I I checked my phone and it was like it was a notification. And I saw, you know, you see like the first three lines and then like the dot, dot, dot. And I was I was like, oh, that's something that I'm going to definitely look at when I wake up <laughs> and, right. then, and then rolled over and then forgot. And like a week later, I was like, oh, shit, there was somebody who, who was like, I think I know what's wrong with your heart. And I was looking for it and looking for it and looking for it. And I couldn't find it in the email. I totally forgot that it was a Facebook message. And I finally saw it and was like, oh, and then we were going to get you on the show. So you can see how selfish uh, uh we all are because you sent us an application like two years ago. Like, hey, look, here's the, all the cool things about me. And then as soon as you're like, oh, I think I might know what's up with Taylor. But let me talk about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. They're like, okay, all right, cool. But I'm not a doctor, so don't, <laughs> don't take my diagnosis. That's okay. I haven't been in the hospital. No one's run any tests, but I'll take your word for it. So yeah. let, let's take it back, um, uh, like way, way back. Wait, I so th- we're not going to find out what's... What do you, Maybe we'll revisit. Okay. Yeah, because you haven't really looked into it, have you? No, I haven't. But hey. we can. But we can. We can do like a tiny couple of minutes. <laughs> on I later. like hypotheticals. <laughs> um, so let, let's take it back. Um, I, I know that. So we, we were talking before we started recording that we're going to probably focus in more so on the the PTSD side of things than the Crohn's side of things. Mm-hmm. We've touched on Crohn's quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, we've we've done a couple episodes on PTSD. Um, but where? So you know, you said you were diagnosed a year ago. Or uh, is that? It? Yeah, the PTSD diagnosis was about a year. About ago. a year ago, yeah. but it it stems from much further back. So take yeah. us back to where you think this this uh, started to formulate. Okay, um, it, this is a situation where a lot of people that end up with PTSD might experience a single traumatic event, and from that event, they'll have the PTSD. Mm. For me, it's not quite so straightforward. There's a number of sort of long-term, long-standing issues that I've experienced that are very much contributing factors to my mental health and the PTSD. And it goes right back to my childhood, um, both with having a pretty significant illness as a child and the fact that I grew up in an abusive home where my father was uh, very abusive. So throughout my childhood, I grew up in a home environment that was not safe, that was full of fear and anxiety all the time. Mm. And that as a child developing in that environment of, and just not feeling safe in your own own home, that's a, a big issue for sure. Yeah. Like the, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, like what kind of... It like, was it, it was mental, emotional, physical, everything except sexual, really. Right. And for him, it was 
continuing intergenerational trauma in that his parents had abused him as a child and it was right. it was you know cycles of trauma that were being repeated and so for me then when i went out to school i was Bo- I both had the, this illness, and so I didn't really, I felt quite embarrassed about this Crohn's disease. You know, you're having to talk about issues with poop and your bum and all this stuff. Mm. This stuff as a child is, is horrific to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I I've just felt really different than everybody. I didn't feel that I, I fit in because of my illness that I was living with. And the fact that I was really being abused at home when I was in the school environment, high school was hell for me because... Um, I just had no self-confidence, you know, they could sense a, a victim in me. And so I was bullied at school. So oh, both, yeah. both in the home environment and the school environment, I just felt really unsafe and really fearful. So that was sort of during my developmental period. And in the course of preparing to talk to you guys, I actually dug up some interesting stats. Dude, you did you did some fucking homework. Like you've got you basically yeah. have a duotang that with with like with <laughs> post-it notes and like <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't just want to come up here and just start talking on my ass. I wanted to actually have some solid stats for you guys. Yeah, I, for, for once. I haven't for heard once, this podcast will have stats. I haven't heard the word Real duotang stats. in a long time. I've been trying to bring it back. I love that word. I like duotang. I also like scribbler, but I prefer <laughs> duotang over scribbler. Dude, just uh, just a side note: Do you guys know what duotang means? Uh, the two, two prongs. I think it's Sorry. the two the duo tangs that you fold down. I was going to make a vagina joke. No, oh, that well, that's just not not the time hey, or place. Hey, <laughs> young man, there's nothing funny, funny about vaginas. About okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, child abuse and yeah. mental health. Thank there's, you there's for a huge for thing. Bringing it back. <laughs> that was discovered in the '90s by some uh, psychiatrists who started studying the issue of child abuse, and essentially, what was found was they decided or they realized that the gravest and most costly public health issue in the U.S. was child abuse. Its overall cost exceeded that of cancer, heart disease, and that eradicating child abuse in the U.S. would reduce the rate of depression in the U.S. by more than 50%. It would reduce the rate of alcoholism by 66% and reduce the rates of suicide, IV drug use, and domestic Holy violence fuck. by 75%. So, so is it, it the reason it's so costly is because it it results in all of these other issues exactly. down the road. Exactly. Um, people who fuck. grow up with that trauma, with that child childhood trauma during their key development years, so frequently go on to have addiction issues, to really not know how to relate to other people because they've grown up in this environment of violence and fear. And so they bring that violence into their own lives as grownups. Mm. And as a result, there's all these issues around depression, suicide, drug use, and, and, and all of that, that all stems from a, the, this trauma that gets repeated mm. with families. Was it like, so, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the abuse that you were facing from your father, was it things like, like, were you just, was it just like, so I, <clears throat> this is really interesting to me because I come, I've, I come from the complete opposite, like very nuclear, very like, very just like vanilla, normal upbringing. There was like, nurturing. There, yeah, very nurturing, very loving. My parents like always loved each other so much. And it was just like, it was, it was a lot of love going around the house. Um, and so but not too much. Not too much. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was just just enough. Um, but so with Jesus you, like you Christ. and your father, was it things like he, he would take out his anger on you, or was it like, 
was was it things like you you were always worried you were going to say the wrong thing or is it just like just general like like oh this is this is how you raise your kids like this you just beat the shit out of them and yeah it was really all of the above you know everything you're saying is pretty accurate in terms of my experience as a kid it was there was a lot of anger a lot of violence a lot of being beaten any at the drop of a hat type of thing. Mm. So just really never feeling like you measured up and always being afraid that if you screwed up somehow, then you're it's just going to yeah. get beaten. For I'm, it. I'm really curious about like going back to that study too. They're, they're talking about um, all of the, uh, basically the symptoms of, of not treating uh, child abuse, but like what is, were there any proposed methodologies to like, to st- Stop or mm. reduce mm-hmm. child abuse. Yeah, like how do you how do you stop yeah, like, it? it? Right. Yeah. Because it, I mean, education. You know, like like right. But if it's um, playing into it from like a, a host of mental health factors, because you know, logically, when I think about this as somebody who is outside of it and ha- hasn't experienced it, like that sort of trauma, my initial thought goes to okay, so that happens to you as a child, so it perpetu it would like stop the cycle. I mean that from, b- because I'm saying that from outside of the mental yeah, yeah. health aspect. Because you, you'd be thinking, <clears throat> oh, well I'll never, I'll, I'll grow up and I would, ha- right. I would never want to do that to my son. I would right. never want to give or you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Which, which I guess is, is at some point along the line is where you're hoping that that turns where you learn, where there's somebody in that lineage that learns from that and yeah. ends that. But generally that's not the but case. But generally that's not the case, no. I suppose, because of like mental health issues. And I guess addic- like addiction, I'm sure plays a, a huge um, role. Like was that, was that anything that was ever like prevalent in like your life or your, or your family or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I can, speaking for myself personally, and, and addiction also goes really hand in hand with PTSD specifically. The two really awful things that are so closely associated with PTSD are addiction and suicide. Those are very commonly mm. associated with PTSD. And it's certainly something that I have struggled with in the past, definitely. In terms of your question about, you know, how to deal with it, this is a really hard question. Mm-hmm. And and like um, you mentioned, it's, it's because it's, a lot of it has to do with awareness and I have to live, I have a couple of young kids and I have to live every day with the awareness that my natural tendencies might be towards anger and violence and that I need to pause and think about how I'm reacting to my children and just have that in the back of my head. The tricky thing about dealing with people who are already in that situation is they don't typically respond very well to medications or to therapy um, the part of the, the therapy issue is interesting because what the study also said was if you lack a deep memory of feeling loved and safe, the receptors in the brain that respond to human kindness may actually fail to develop. Wow. Whoa. So it actually affects Whoa. how much comfort and pleasure that we can experience in the presence of other people. Holy so fuck. So your ability to even respond to the kindness of other people is affected in your brain mm. by those experiences. <clears throat> so it's a really challenging thing to deal with once you're older and you realize that this issue is there. Mm-hmm. I guess. And the reason why I, I talked about like, and I was asking if there's any way that they're trying to prevent this now um, is because we're not, we're not sitting here in this room trying to figure out how to fix child abuse. I mean, the, our goal is to hear your story. So hearing that there's this generational generational kind of passing down of 
of child abuse and now you have you mentioned that you have a couple of kids i do yeah and i also have three younger brothers who against the odds have turned out to in, to be really amazing people and fathers themselves too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my, I have kids ages seven and six now as well. So I think it's really important to, to kind of point out, I mean, this awareness that you have is obviously have, has had quite an impact in how you raise your kids. So is there anything else specifically that you're doing to stop it? Yeah, I'm really trying to focus on sort of the opposite of the natural tendencies toward anger and violence to be very nurturing, to be physically affected or not uh, affectionate with them, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and to give them encouragement and support and just to, you know, be there with them in a very positive and encouraging way as a father. Mm -hmm. Right. So then I guess you go into fast forwarding a little bit, you end up um, going into healthcare and yeah. Uh, in particular, being a paramedic. So that isn't an easy job when it comes to like contributing to mental health issues and and more PS, PTSD. Yeah. So has that been even more of a challenge? Yeah, for sure. And and here's something again, and this is all fairly new for me within the past year as well. And so I've been trying to educate myself and research. And I read this one thing that nearly knocked me off my chair when I read it. Um, the psychiatrist author of of a book called The Body Keeps the Score was talking about how people who have been traumatized tend to seek high risk activities, those adrenaline fear filled activities um, as a way to relive the, the fear and the violence that they've experienced, but in a situation where they have some measure of control. Mm, wow. Um, but what, That's interesting. what stood out for me in particular was he's talking about these issues and he's describing some high risk activities. And he's, he mentions, um, you know, jumping out of airplanes, riding motorcycles. And he says, working as a paramedic. And at that moment, mm. I, I thought, stopped and thought, did I become a paramedic because I already had PTSD? All this time, I had thought that I, my PTSD had come directly from my paramedic work, which I'll, I'll get to in, in, a, in mm, a bit. Is yeah, certainly a factor in that. I'm sure. But when I read that statement, I my jaw dropped, and I thought, I must maybe I had PTSD when I was younger, and I got into this high adrenaline profession because I had the PTSD already. Whoa. So you you okay? So you get you make this you read this and you start to think about this. The fact that you're you you got into um, the work of a paramedic, like, what do you think? Do you think you did that because of, like a direct result, or is it kind of hard to tell? I think it's definitely possible. Yeah. There, there, once I had reached my later teenage years, I definitely got into the really adrenaline junkie phase where you know I was jumping out of airplanes, I was snowboarding, mountain biking and going in mosh pits at punk shows and and seeking these really high risk, high excitement and adrenaline activities. And so there was a pattern of behavior for me that would fit with that for sure. Right. Dude, me too. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. I'm like I'm hearing that and going do I have like a trauma? Do you're, I have a trauma somewhere in my yeah, life that, going, I, that I've been going, suppressing? Oh, uh, then I must have PTSD. <laughs> I love moshing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. There's you're clearly an yeah. idiot. No, yeah. no, no, no. But I, no, mean, I get it. I know, and I don't mean. I mean that like I I have a tendency towards yeah. high adrenaline activities and that rush, and then it just makes you think. Like, I mean that that just that that one little statement of you're looking for that type of like 
sensation of, of fear, but within a more controlled state that you are choosing to enter rather than being forced into, um, which I, I'm going, I'm going, whoa, that is a fascinating. But here's thing. the difference between you and Josh. Josh went to become an uh, EMT and you opened a yoga studio. You got a little bit older and you went, ah, I'm going to settle down. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, dude, I'm not, I'm not making the correlation between every, every professional skydiver has been has, has trauma. <laughs> well, ad- adrenaline is addictive. So, right. so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of the yeah. same way that, uh, that people get tattoos and, and want to get more tattoos because there's this kind of like it, the pain, in a sense, is this addiction totally. that is comes in a in a mostly safe environment where you're you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. You're just getting pricked a bunch of times. Yeah. Well, Brian, and that's actually a really interesting thing that my, one of my therapists brought up was that um, people with trauma histories use tattoos just like people use cutting because that pain sensation is something they seek out mm. and if they're not necessarily mm. cutting themselves they can get the same thing through tattoos well right. it's like it's yeah, like sure. uh john from s-town yeah oh, right, yeah, right. Get, right, right. and, and yeah. you get like tattooed over like over and over the same spots too yeah. just to, like not uh, to yeah. do like a promo but if anyone here has not listened to s-town or anyone listening has not like go listen to s-town it's a podcast right away. and it's an incredible podcast yeah it stands for shit town which yeah. is really Really interesting. I didn't know that until I said Shit Town, Alabama. Shit Town. Um, so uh, just go, just rewinding a little bit. I know that, so this was like, this this trauma was something that happened over years mm-hmm. of, of um, abuse and, and, you know, struggles through high school. Do you, do you think that there was any one particular um, incident throughout that that like stands out that really hammered that home or... Or do you think it was just the like sort of gradual over the over time, constant sort of battering of your like your your well being? Well, I can think of the first major situation that affected me deeply uh, in terms of the mental health, and it actually m- relates to my physical health problems around the Crohn's as opposed to the childhood development stuff. Right. So, when I was twenty three year old years old. Uh, I almost died for the first time of a few times. Oh, whoa. All right. And it was because of the Crohn's disease. I had been very ill for about a year leading up to that point with the Crohn's. Uh, I was losing weight. I was in agony every day. I would get up in the morning, take uh, some Demerol, some codeine, and maybe a morphine tablet just to be able to handle the pain to start my day, go into work as a paramedic, be taking Tylenol 3s throughout the day to be at a state that I could actually function still. And honestly, during that time, I was a lot more sick than the people I was picking up in the ambulance. I remember times where I was in the back of the ambulance and I'd sort of go around above the head of the stretcher where the patient couldn't see me because I felt like I was going to start puking. And I'd be sort of crouched down in a ball in agony while we were taking somebody to the hospital. Was it just like gut pain? Like just yeah. like throughout your, your abdomen? and Very specific and your... lower abdominal pain where the inflammation was from right. the Crohn's. Fuck, dude. It, it got to a point where I knew I needed surgery, but at that time I was transitioning from working up in northern Ontario to getting a job with Toronto paramedic services and so Which i didn't like want to very take, different right like way more intense oh yeah 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 uh, so i didn't want to take the time off work for the surgery unfortunately what ended up happening was i left it too long my bowel started to perforate and I had to have an emergency surgery 
And by that point, though, I'd been so sick for so long. I'd been on prednisone for ages, which really affects the healing process. So following the surgery, I was in hospital for a week. And the day I was released, I ended up with a bowel obstruction, which is not uncommon after an abdominal surgery. Oh, man, are you going to get a barium enema? I had one of those once, and (laughs) it was great. Great times. Um, (laughs) At that point... So the day I got home, I got this bowel obstruction, started vomiting like crazy. It it opened up my abdominal incision wide open again. So oh I just had fuck. this big oh hole no. in my gut. Oh. And, oh no. and here's, well, this ties into the earlier stuff I was talking about. When I was in the bathroom puking with my abdomen opening up, my dad comes in and he goes, oh, you're just a drug addict, flushes all my pain pills down the toilet and walks away. Whoa. And, oh, fuck. So my, um, my brother had... Wait, just, you were 23, though? I was 23. You were so, still at home. Uh, I was back home briefly because I was transitioning to the job in Toronto. So I was sort of oh. in transition for the new Holy job. And having your surgery yeah, at the same time. That's right. So yeah. it just kind of happened during, during a point when I happened to be at home. And... So one of my brothers sort of half carried me to the family van, took me to the hospital. I ended up with getting an NG nasogastric tube up my nose, which is a nasty experience. So awful. Have yeah. you had that? Yeah, I have. Yeah, oh, it's fucking God. terrible. Yeah, it is horrible. Yeah. Um, and they're like, swallow, just swallow, just swallow. Oh, and you're yeah. like, like the whole time. You're like, I can't just swallow. Dude, they put it. Well, I don't know if this happened to you, but they were putting it in, in through my nose. And they're like, yeah, that's it. You swallow. And I have like. Uh, cr- I can't brush my tongue like with a br- toothbrush. Like I have a really intense gag reflex. Oh dear! Super, super easy. As soon as they start getting in my throat, I start gagging. And the Taylor tube said that makes it hard. Usually, the for him. T- <laughs> the tube starts going down my throat, and I throw it up. But <laughs> instead of coming up and out of my nose, I throw it up out of my mouth. So the tube's oh, now in my nose and out my mouth. Oh, nasty! And so they got to pull it all the way back out and start all over again. It is. I like I, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, God, I hope I never in my life yes. have to do that again. Used to do that with rope. Like, it's just put so rope crazy that people just do it. Pull it out as yeah. well. That's so nasty. So, so they put the NG tube yeah. in because because you, everything's of the so obstruction. Up. So they right. needed to drain the stomach contents over a few days, and th- that gagging the whole time it's in there for those few days. Every time you talk, every time you move, it just rubs against the back of your mm. throat. It's mm. horrible. It's really nasty. So, yeah. anyways, I was in the hospital for a second week. At the end of the second week, when I came home. Um, right now I'm six feet tall. I'm about 180 pounds. When I walked out of the hospital, I was 108 pounds. Oh my God, dude. Wow. So it's, it's no exaggeration to say if you've seen photographs of the concentration camps at the end of world war two, the first thing that came to my head was like, you exactly like a Holocaust what I, looked, survivor. I did yeah. very much. Dude. And at six feet tall shit, we were like, dude, we were weighing ourselves the other day and a friend of ours who's this like by nature, this like petite framed woman who is like fuck five feet tall maybe like five one and she was 105 pounds yeah yeah, yeah. dude yeah. six at six feet tall you would have just like, been just walking skeleton, skeleton. yeah mm. uh so th- oh. that's how close i was to dying really and uh, i pulled through it all i eventually recovered but afterwards at that part of me did die i feel with that experience um just the amount of pain being that close to death just the horrors of it all definitely there's a, a part of me mentally that died with all of that. And, and that's Ooh. the first major point uh, with where emotionally I changed the, where sort of 
emotionally I became kind of dead and there was only anger left. And that I think is where the PTSD started to really have an effect on my life looking back now. Mm. So uh, I'm interested to saying that there was only anger left. Um, and you mentioned that you do have children. So uh, are you, do you have a wife that you're with right now? Yeah, I have a very supportive spouse. So when, when did you meet her? I was in my late twenties or mid twenties, I guess. And I, yeah, I was still in that kind of pretty angry phase, especially since I had also come out of some kind of bad relationships and I wasn't in a great frame of mind when we met, but we became friends and we were, we were actually friends for several years before we started dating and we dated for several years before we got married. Mm. So what was it like, uh, opening up to her about like experiences or this experience in particular that's that it was obviously so traumatic it's it's something that is really hard to put into words when you experience that degree of of agony and pain um and just the overall experience is, is a tough thing to talk about but one thing I've discovered and, and what is amazing about your podcast is that the more I talk about things in general, going back to when I was a kid and feeling embarrassed about talking about my Crohn's to eventually being really open about it. Same thing with the mental health stuff. The more that I can talk about it and be open about it, the easier it is to do. And the more people are able to relate because of their own experiences with things. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I, I the the reason I kind of asked that too is because I've been reflecting a lot about a, a conversation that my mom and I had uh, a few months ago about her cancer, and we had like I'd talked to Taylor and Jeremy about having the conversation before, and it it took like what was it guys like two or three months? Yeah, it was before, a while yeah. before I actually asked her to sit down and have the conversation. And the funny thing is, is like with the experience of doing this podcast. I knew that it was going to be a productive conversation and that, that afterwards I would feel better um, because I had had it. And it still took so long to have. Um, so I was wondering what your experience in having that conversation with your wife, like was there a big build up to that? Um, did it just kind of like happen without you really knowing and, and did it feel better afterwards? Yeah, I don't think there was a big buildup. I feel like by that point, uh, I was, I, I don't know, I'm, I can't remember where I was with processing it all myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know that, I can say from experience that when people do take the time to ask me questions, I really appreciate it. So, you, you know, you said you were really anxious to talk to your mother, but from, you know, putting myself in her shoes, I feel that when people do actually sort of pluck up the courage to talk, ask me these t- tough questions about difficult things, it makes me feel great. It's like it, a it, gives me, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gives yeah. me a chance to to talk about it with somebody I know who's interested in mm-hmm. it. The thing yeah. I find that, and I've, I was thinking about this earlier in the conversation <coughs> too, the thing that I find challenging about talking to someone about uh, PTSD is 
the the fact that we had this conversation with uh, uh, Matt and Sticky on, on one of our first episodes about PTSD, mm. and I know that his experience, he didn't want to talk specifically about what caused the trauma because it was it was really really difficult for him to relive that. So I've always been hesitant to to ask those questions um, because I don't know what is and what isn't okay to talk about. <clears throat> but so that's the thing is you just, if you ask and they say, I'm not really, I, I'm not really ready to talk about that. Then it's as simple as going, cool. Okay. Yeah. That's so uh, what else? What, what's up? Yeah. What's up? What else is up? You know, like, like that's <laughs> yeah. it. You know, like it, it, just because you ask that it doesn't mean that the person's in, in, in immediately going to like lash out at you. Plus right. everybody's experience is unique. So that's you, right. You, so, you were saying that that was this like this situation where you had the bowel obstruction your at your abdominal incision started reopening like you almost died um but that wasn't the only time that that's that's ever happened how many times have you almost died at least 3 <laughs> okay. The second time was just a, a vacation in the Bahamas where I was snorkeling and I got caught in a riptide and I didn't know what a riptide was, so I almost oh drowned. <laughs> but the, the third time actually relates a bit to the first because after that experience of the surgery, I sort of made myself a promise that I, if I ever get that sick again, I'm just going to die and not go through another surgery because that was too much for me. You choose death? Like that's, you just, that's you sort just... of a decision I had made at that point, but... Then about oh, five or six years ago, I started to get sick again and wasn't responding well to the Crohn's medications. And the same pattern was starting to come into play again. And as time, that's right about the time when I had to go off on disability. And so I wasn't working anymore because of the illness issues. And it came, came to a point where I tried all the medications, nothing was working. The only option left was surgery. Mm. So I, here I was in that situation that I had feared so much. And before, ultimately I did have a second surgery, but leading up to it, I did one day reach a point where I was like, I'm so afraid, I'm in so much pain, I can't do this anymore. One night I took a bunch of, painkillers, a bunch of sleeping pills, gravel, oh. Oh, alcohol, a whole bunch of shit. And thought, well, at the very least, I'm going to get a good night's sleep tonight. And mm-hmm. uh, it turns out I woke up the next morning. I went on with my day. That was it. But wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, you didn't even whoa. have to go to the hospital. No. So, whoa. but did you, did you, okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the way he said that, I was like, is this code for like, I'm killing myself? Like, were you, were you did you... When you made, when you took all that stuff, were yeah. you in your head going, I am, this is the, this is the last moment I'm going to be alive. Like once I close my eyes, I'm dead. I or were like, you like, man, let's see what happens. Maybe I won't die. I wasn't in a very clear frame of mind at that right. point. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what I wanted. I don't know if I just wanted a good sleep or if I wanted to die. I think I was happy with both results. And right. indifferent to right. the result. Exactly. Holy yeah. shit, man. That's so like, that's so intense. And it's, I don't like to talk about it because it's, it's embarrassing, especially since I had very young kids at the time and right. what I would have left to my family, my spouse. Yeah. And, but it, again, if I, if I want to talk about the PTSD issues, the suicide issue is something that goes right along with that. Yeah. And you know, there's all throughout the summer, I just keep seeing news articles of paramedics in Canada committing suicide. It was, it recently was in the news that it was just like, it was 
it was like an epidemic. Like people, yeah. like it was like EMS people from all across Canada. It was, it was, it, what was that? Like, was that a, was that a Canada wide thing or was it like something specific to Western Canada or like Calgary or something? It's like definitely Canada wide. Okay. Uh, most recently there was a, a guy in St. John, New Brunswick, just a few weeks ago, a paramedic who killed himself. Right. But it's certainly a Canada wide issue. There was a survey of more than 4,000 first responders and it found that 6.6% of them had attempted suicide, which is 10 times the rate of the general population. Whoa. Jesus Christ. Wow. So, and even the prevalence of mental illness and PTSD, I have some really interesting numbers if you want to hear them. Like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just recently, the results from Canada's first national survey looking at operational stress injuries among first responders was released. They found that in comparison to 10% of the general population who suffer from mental disorders, the rate amongst first responders is 44.5%. So almost 50% of first responders have some kind of mental health issues. Among first responders, Jesus. the highest rates of mental illness are seen with paramedics, RCMP, and corrections officers. Right. And there's some specific stats for PTSD where uh, they say military, the rate of PTSD is 8%, firefighters, 17%, police officers, 20%, corrections personnel, 22%, and paramedics are at 26%. So one out of every four paramedics they figure has PTSD. So is that wow. is that because, um, you know, I'm, I think it's probably safe to say that that's because on a day-to-day basis, you are seeing the world, like, at its worst. Like, you're seeing people totally mangled in car accidents. You're seeing people, like, um, you know, d- stabbed in, in a gang violence incident. You're see- Like, you're seeing trauma, like, physical trauma to humans on a day-to-day basis. Is that where that comes from? It's that, but crucially, combined with the fact that we feel we're responsible for making that situation better, for saving that life, for turning that oh, horrible trauma right. into something better. Right. And so a quote that came from that study was, the study said paramedics reported they experienced very high rates of exposure to human suffering for which they often feel responsible right. because their actions weren't good enough, weren't enough to save that right. life. Right, you couldn't save oh. the life or... or yeah. Wow, Jesus. And so talking about my own experiences, I know that... So my PTSD as it relates to my work is very much related to the dead babies and the dead children that I've had to deal with. That's specifically what affects me. And the reason I know that is because I was getting along okay until I had my first kid. The instant I had my first child, I started having nonstop nightmares about all the dead children I dealt with in the past. Oh, wow. And as, as well as the fact that here I was having to think about my own childhood experiences with my own father. Mm. And so that all came flooding in when I, as soon as I had my first child, it was the, my, my own trauma as a child, my own experiences with dealing with the dead children at work. That that's when it all really became a serious issue for me. And is it, I guess it doesn't even have to be. Um, like I was going to say, is it super common to deal with that? But I like, fuck dude, I've never dealt, dealt with a, dead child in my life once and i think just one time is is enough to yeah. like completely yeah. fuck me up for the rest of my life so yeah it's not something we deal it. with very frequently but when we do it's super hard right i've heard that like i i've i you know my brother-in-law ted he we were having this conversation once about how having a kid completely changed his life in terms of like um in terms of like 
he can't watch movies or like TV shows now that have anything to do with like um, children being hurt or like harmed in Me any either. way because it just totally fucks him up mm-hmm. because he has a child. And uh, and yeah, I don't like I don't think that that's uncommon. I think a lot of people go through that and experience that. Yeah. And uh, I, I live part of PTSD is feel a constant feeling that you're not safe, that you're always on edge. You feel like you're always in danger. And for me, that translates to my kids where I always think that something horrible is going to happen to them. And part of that is because of my experiences with when it has happened to other people. So, Mm. you know, when my when one of my kids sleeps late in the morning, I'm thinking, oh, my God, my kids died during the night. I have to go in and check. Okay, their chest is rising. They're still breathing. Right. You know, so there's definitely. Yeah. Having having kids is something that really changed things for me. Sick Boy Podcast, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. So you were saying that uh, you've been on on disability now for five years or so. That's right. Um, What was the like, what was the tipping point there that made you decide to 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 back out and just like take some time from and some space from work? My my family doctor, who's been super supportive, thankfully, <coughs> had been encouraging me for a while to go on disability because she, I'd been in there on a regular basis, obviously. She knew all the stuff that was going on, both with the physical and the mental health. But I wasn't willing to take that step. I, I felt like I could just put my head to it and keep going with it. And it was just happened sort of organically where one day in November, I booked off a sick from work because my guts were bad. And... I just never ended up going back to work. That that sick day turned into a couple of sick days, which turned into a couple of weeks, which rolled over into long-term disability. Mm. And it took a long time for me to realize that, you know, maybe my career is over now. I, I always thought, okay, I'm going to get through this somehow. With my, with my second surgery, I thought maybe that'll fix things up. It didn't have as much success as I was hoping it would. And it's been hard for me to mentally adjust to the fact that that's a kind of a part of my past. I'm not going to be able to maybe get myself to a point of health where I can be super functional again. Is is that where you'd want, I mean, in a perfect world where, um, you know, your physical health issues, uh, get better and your, the way that you deal with your mental health, uh, improves, would you, is that where you want to go back to, to, to being a paramedic? In a perfect world, I would love to be in that situation to, because part of it is, is too, just not being able to provide for my family is a huge right. burden as well. Yeah. The, the disability, it, we've, you know, we've struggled so much financially with, with being on, with my being on disability, not being able to bring in that income. So I'm, I'm seeing things that we're having to leave out for the children. We're not able to provide for them as much as we would like to. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be back to work and being more of a support for my family in that way, for sure. Right. Is disability enough to, to get by on or do you have to subsidize that with like your wife working? Yeah, my wife has been doing her best with that. She, it's been a tough situation for her as well because all she wanted to do was be a stay-at-home mom and while well, I worked and brought in the income. But that got flipped on its head, obviously, where mm-hmm. she had to find a way to provide income. So she spent actually two years getting her post-secondary education upgraded so she Ooh. could get into a better career. And actually for the past five months or so, she's finished her education but hasn't been able to find work so um she's doing jobs as she can get them but Mm. that's helping to supplement things but yeah the financial stress is a big part of all of illness in general i think the financial stress 
goes right along with the disability issues. And financial, man, financial stress is like, dude, that is a bur- It is a heavy, heavy burden. You know, it's, it is. it's a lot to deal with. Yeah. So I can't, I can't even imagine like it being in that situation with kids on top of that. Like that fucking boggles my mind, you know? Right. Oh, well, one thing I wanted to mention too is, um, I, I sort of wanted to address the fact that there's, there still is stigma, you know, whenever we talk about mental illness, there, mm. there's all, there's the issue of stigma yeah. and that certainly exists in the first responder community to a certain extent, despite these super high rates that I just quoted there, there's still this attitude out there that, you know, you just got to tough it out. Right. And for, for the five years I've been off of work, um, I haven't been contacted by anybody from my work um, until just recently, I got a message from a Toronto paramedic and the gist of his message was that I don't have PTSD. I have, what did he say? He said self-absorbed asshole disorder. He said his words, he said, I'm a pussy and that I need to put on my big boy pants and get back to work or commit suicide. That's, to you? He to said that to me, me. you? To, directly to me. Whoa. That's the message I received from a fellow paramedic. Out of nowhere? Well, I had been on a, a, um, a Facebook site that was a support for people, first responders with PTSD. He had made some comments on that site that I thought were not helpful, and I had mentioned to him that they were not helpful right, comments. Right. And his response to me was that I need to put on my big boy pants or commit suicide. Dude, Dude that is what? so... What a piece of shit. Fucking crazy. Like, like that guy's a piece <clears> of shit. <throat> uh, like, so the other day, this, like, this just reminded me of this Fuck. instance the other day. So a friend of mine... I met when I was probably 20 years old, just came out and said, Hey, I'm transgender. And he wrote this message. She wrote this message, wrote this message and said, if you could do this, this would be amazing. If you could do this, this would be amazing. If you want to slander me, send me a personal message so that my friends and family don't have to see people badmouthing me on Facebook. And I thought to myself, who are the people that have the fucking balls to then go, sure, I'll message you directly and tell you how much I don't like what you are, mm. are so strong to say. But those people do exist. And this is that proof. Which is so is crazy. Like, that there's somebody out there that will take the time to just fucking, with no fucking like information, to just make this fucking claim. Oh, dude, it's there's, just like it boggles me. Yeah, that's fucked. Yeah. I, I think the, I think the, the, the thing that like that... that the thing that I hate is like this, this toxic masculinity that yes. is like being like fucking thrown about mm-hmm. in this particular situation. Yep. Right. So this guy being like, stop being a pussy, pull up your big boy pants or, or get the fuck out of Dodge, like kill yourself. Yeah. Like dude, none of that <sighs> is, that is so unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Like it is so, and, and like, you know, I, I would, I hate, I would hate to imagine what he's going through. Because I, I bet you he's not doing very well. And that was my you know? thought, too, was he, yeah, I think he's real. got some mental health issues going Absolutely. on himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because like that is you, you, I don't think you can say that without having, without having something, something, without like, having some sort of like, you know, the, not to say that people with mental health are nasty people. No, 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 no. But, but that guy, exactly. To react that way, that guy has gone through his life at, in he has been he has been taught or told or have had these situations that have brought him to this point where he feels validated in in saying that and that is that is sick yeah that is sick so right. it can be hard to get support and it can be in so many ways um 
when I first started therapy, I was seeing this uh, older gentleman therapist. And after about half a dozen sessions, he had to look something up on his computer. So he turned to his computer. He said, paused for a minute, said, what's your last name? Typed in my last name. He paused for a minute again. Uh, what's your first name? I'm like, really? Oh, <laughs> okay. Geez, you're like Even my first session? name. He's like, okay. So he typed, looks up his thing, whatever. He has no idea who I am. I've been sitting there in his office for how many, however many times. And then oh, some, this some, isn't the first time. This oh, is no, like, this, oh, is, this is a, at least half a dozen sessions into therapy with this guy. Oh my God. And then some um, time goes by. I'm trying to book another appointment with him, <laughs> leaving, leaving phone messages, not getting any response. Several months later, I go in for my appointment with a psychiatrist. He asks about therapy. And I said, well, actually, I can't get through to this guy. My psychiatrist says, oh, he retired. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. He, he didn't tell me he was retired. No. I, no wonder I couldn't get through to him. And so it's, it's things like these when you're trying to get better. You know, you're mm. trying to do the things you need to do to fix the situation. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're up against coworkers who say stuff like that. You're up against therapists who just disappear. Mm, yeah. You and know? would that be like, would that be a, a therapist that would be like provided through the healthcare system? So yeah, like, so like part and parcel of like things that could be better about the overall healthcare mm-hmm. system of like letting people know that your therapist doesn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the thing about like therapy and that that I've always been told um, you know, a number of times is that like it's 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 one of those things where like a lot of people who are seeking therapy um this this sort of piece of advice that I've heard of of people people really need to like do their homework and really seek out someone who they truly feel is like right on their fucking team yeah. and they're for them. That's the challenge a, of and, getting better from, from mental health issues is there's so much proactive work. That's so hard. For it's somebody. so hard right. to be proactive yeah. when and, you're already yeah. suffering from, yeah. you know, this, this thing that inherently makes you, makes it hard to be proactive. That's right. It, and it, it, it translates know, to the financial stuff too. There's endless forms to fill out for mm. the disability stuff. Um, there's just so many hurdles that you got to jump through just to maintain the disability status. And every mm-hmm. step of the way feels like it's such a battle. And for people who are even less functional than myself, I don't know how they do it. And yeah. it's no wonder that so many people end up on the streets, you know, mm. and it's, it's such a, a difficult thing to overcome when you have those issues. Out of this, you know, this entire process, um, what what would you say is is the one thing that your PTSD has taken away from you? Honestly, the both the physical and mental health things I feel like have taken away almost everything. You know, like I said, I really felt like part of me has died with with the experience of the surgeries. I've lost my career. Uh, there's there's just, I feel like there's not a lot left. What I do have left mm. is my family. And that really what is what it comes down to me for me at this point. Um, in terms, I mean, one big thing is taken away from me is, is hope. I, um, you know, I've got this, uh, 
our bracelet thing on. A lot of people have these rubber bla- bracelets with the uh, motivational things like faith and courage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. My bracelet says despair on it, which I think mm-hmm. it's hilarious, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of appropriate. <laughs> but, <laughs> your bracelet says despair. Your T-shirt says fuck my life. <laughs> uh, oh, I thought it said EMS. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so it's it's taken it's taken my hope away. I don't have a lot to hope for. It's hard for me to think about tomorrow or next week. I just. I put my head down and I do what I need to do today. Mm. And, and yeah. What's the one thing that you think that it's given you? It's It's certainly given me a couple of things. It's given me an ability to talk to anybody about anything. I think both my experiences at work and my personal experiences allow me to really be able to talk to people who are struggling with some pretty severe issues. Mm. It's, it's given me humility. I've had to learn to ask for help, which is a hard thing for me to do. I'm a very much an independent, fiercely independent person. I, I hate to ask for help, but I've been so many times over the past five years in situations where I've had to ask people for help and have had amazing responses from people that have really blown me away. But, but that level of humility is something that I had to get down to as well. Mm. If you, if you could say one thing to, uh, to people who are in a similar situation to you, to people who have received messages like, like that POS sent you one, um, recently, um, what would you say to someone who's like, who particularly emergency response, um, worker, in your situation, what would you, what would you like, what would you give them? What would you like to say to them? I would encourage them to at least explore the options of finding help. If they are feeling that they're having having a hard time coping, definitely, Find what support you can, especially if you can find something within within the medical community, if they've got a good doctor or something that they can turn to. It's hard. It can be hard, really hard to find a good help, good support, both within the medical community and among your peers. But there's hopefully always somebody that you can turn to and say, listen, I'm feeling these things you know, help me through it. Right. Mm. And I'm super fortunate to have some supportive people like my spouse and my brothers Mm -hmm. and and my friends. And it's, yeah, it's not enough for some people, for a lot of paramedics who have ended their lives, but I, I hope that they would talk about it, you know, that's, Mm. and again, coming back to the whole purpose of the, of the podcast here, talk about it with people because you'll be surprised by, how eager people are to hear your story, to help you, mm. to do what they can for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because there's there's way more people out there like that than there are of that that yeah. asshole yes. who's going to like sit down and send that message. That's right? it. That's like it. there's far more of the good people out there when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, <clears throat> hopefully we can get some of that from this episode to like kind of like prove yeah. prove yeah. that that guy is an outlier yeah mm-hmm. um and get some like positive so if like if you've got something to say about this episode and like 
offer your support, you know, like do it when, mm-hmm. we, when we put this stuff up. The other thing that I hope that, that, that this talk can, can do is that, you know, like I'm, there's a lot of young people that listen to this podcast and I know that, that, you know, um, uh, paramedics, like it's such an important job and there's a lot of people who, who, who strive to go into that field of work. And if anyone who like is young listening to this and that's your like life goal, to really just like, I, I don't know what goes into the training, right. But to just like keep it in the back of your mind to like set yourself up for success by yeah. anticipating that like you're, you're going to, you're going to go into something that is inherently f- very difficult. Yeah. Right. And so it's just like, have your support systems set up in place before things potentially get really dark. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Jerry, because one thing that's been in the back of my mind a lot recently is how do we reach people who are at that stage before they get into the career? You know, the paramedic students, because there's so much heavy lifting in the job, they're encouraged to go to the gym, to lift weights, to get their body prepared for the work. Mm. But what can we do to also get them mentally prepared for the situations right. that they're going to find themselves yeah. in? Is yeah. there any of that? Like, what, did, you, do you, did you go through any training that was like, you are going to see some stuff that will affect your mind? Yeah, way back. I mean, it was about 21 years ago when I did that initial college training and we just did some really basic site courses that really Mm. weren't much along those lines. Yeah. And I don't know if they've really caught up to, you know, the more uh, helpful methods, but it's certainly something that's been in the back of my mind to look into to see if there's any way that I can... uh, you know, look into helping out people at the college level or who are just sort of getting into it. Because part of the problem is only the rate of retirement of paramedics is one of the lowest of any profession in Canada. 4% of paramedics will make it to retirement. Everybody else will end up with physical injuries from the lifting or mental injuries, or they'll just burn out. Um, So if we can sort of get people set up both for the not just for the physical aspect, like I said, but also for the mental aspect of it. Mm, yeah. We can help them get through a, a, a career on a, with more success for yeah. sure. I mean, and, and the other thing I was going to say too, going back to younger listeners, if you have younger listeners that are in situations where, you know, when I'm talking about the abuse and the bullying that I suffered, mm. if that rings true for them, it, I, I would just encourage them to know that as an adult, things are so much easier and that you can actually choose who you hang out with. You don't mm-hmm. have to yeah. be forced to, into these awful situations that there's a lot more control and agency over your life when you're older. And if you can get through that, then things will be easier. I mean, mm-hmm. yesterday morning I had chocolate cake for breakfast because I'm an adult. So you, know, <laughs> yeah, you have yeah, more right. control over, yeah. over yeah. your life and things, you know, <laughs> it, it sucks to be in that, but, yeah. but to get through it, to, to have your supportive people in your life and then to get past it and into a place where you are have a lot more control over things. You can do that. I think it's a good point uh, to bring up to it uh, on that note that if there is somebody listening to this, who is a, a kid who, who needs some help, then you can obviously contact uh, either kids help phone or, or any of those services. If you just Google them online, also the national suicide prevention line that works 24 hours a day in Canada and the United States is 1-800-273-8255. Brian, that's your phone number. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm used to giving up my number. And, here's, and here's, one, here's one final thing for people that are going through tough times, too, that came out of the actual, actually the Navy, Navy SEALs training, I guess it came out of, was, have you heard of the 40% rule? 
No, what's that? So this apparently came out of the special forces training <laughs> where they realized that when you get, you know, all of us who have done exercise or tough physical challenges, eventually we get to a point where like, okay, I can't do anymore. I'm done. But what they realize with this r- crazy stuff like hell week that the Navy SEALs go through is yeah. when once your brain is telling you that, okay, I can't, my body can't do anymore. You're at 40% of the way to what your body can actually take. Mm. So they discovered that when your brain is telling you I'm done, I, I can't take anymore. You actually are less than halfway to what you can actually mm. handle. Do you mean so that in the way of going, of going, okay, well now with that information, when you begin to feel like you need to stop, you can, that's like a trigger for you to go, I've got a lot more in the tank. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I can you know, much more. if you feel like you're at the end of the rope, you can't handle anymore. Don't give you, up you because can, you can you're do only 40% and, in. And a lot of that is mm. finding somebody who will motivate you mm-hmm. to get through that, past that and, yeah. and keep going. Right. Right. So it's hard to do that yourself because your own brain is telling you I'm done. I can't take yeah. it. Right. Yeah. But you, you can. And a lot of that has to do with finding the support to help yeah. you do it. Yeah. And also a huge shout out to first responders because like, those those jobs are so grueling mentally and physically. And, oh yeah, and and we need them. They're yeah. they're a necessity in our societies, and and without them, we wouldn't be able to function. Yeah, uh, yeah. the way that we do. And and so big thank you to those people because it's fucking hard. And it is, or it is, it is good that we're. I mean, we're we're going into this into this era now where there is like way more attention on like the longer term effects of mm-hmm. like those types of jobs, jobs where there is. Like where you're dealing with accidents and when you're dealing with trauma and uh, like assessing, it's it seems like and we're in a much more or we're we're moving towards a much more open society where we talk Ooh. about and we research those things to know what kind of effect that they have, like or bullying, like yeah. the longer term effect that that has on the brain. I I want to thank you for coming in. It's my pleasure and having this conversation because I I I truly do feel that this is this is a, a vitally important episode and, and topic. So mm-hmm. and can I leave uh, contact info if people have questions for me or need support? Dude, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I've, I just set up a more public Facebook page, not my own private thing. Uh, so they can look up Josh Yaks, Y A K S. And if anybody has questions about anything or if they're struggling with any of the stuff I talked about or just need somebody to talk to, they can find me there. Josh Yaks on Facebook. On Facebook. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with another very important episode, I'm sure. Uh, until then, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a subscribe, rate, review. Let us know what you think in the uh, in the rate and review section there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you thought of this conversation. I mean, we love hearing from each and every one of you. Um, and... Uh, if you, and here, you know what, let me just put, put this out there. If you feel like, you know, someone who could use this conversation, send it to them, send them a, the link to the blog post, send yeah. them the link to the, the episode through Apple po- podcasts, through Google play, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to, uh, contribute to the podcast, uh, like these awesome trips that we get to do to Toronto to, uh, reach new people and, uh, do, you know, go do awesome live shows that are so much fun. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash sickboy and contribute there. Um, also we've got, uh, I'm not sure exactly when this episode will drop, but we've got a CB, we've got a, our documentary is going to be airing on CBC on October 15th. If you're hearing this after October 15th, it is streamable on the CBC website. That's right. The music is provided by take part. You can check them out at take part in this dot bandcamp.com. And also big shout out to sound design by Donovan Morgan. 
That is it for this week. Until next week, I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.